In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Wow, that's loud. Mine or yours? Mine. Well, mine certainly oh. was. It echoed through my house. Oh, well, look at you. You're like a superhero. I am a With superhero. clapping. Do you remember the season of Atlanta where Sheree wore that white wig in her um, confessionals? That oh, her brightest. Fr- oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The scarecrow wig? No, no, that was Nini. Nini had the blonde scarecrow wig. Sheree's no. was more like Storm from X-Men. Oh, kind of. Yes, I think I'm. I, I'm confusing Nini's Bride of Frankenstein wig with Nini's scarecrow, scarecrow wig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's had more uh, bad looks. Anyway, how you doing? Good. It, that reminds me. I recently saw like a Reddit thread of the worst confessional looks in <laughs> uh, Real Housewives history, and some of the top ones were like early Teresa Judice. Oh, uh, yeah. But I think. Almost universally, the worst one that everybody agrees with is Ashley uh, from Potomac with her, like, uh, square oh, curly curly hair helmet. That was weird. <laughs> it was so bad. She's a gorgeous girl. Beautiful. I I cannot wait for next season of Potomac. Yeah, I'm excited. Champing at the bit. Um, the only thing I have to tell you about is that I we finished rewatching the Americans, so we made it all the way wow. to the end this time. How many seasons is it? Six. Oh, okay. But I think you should watch it. Yeah. Final verdict is. Final verdict yay. is it's great. Okay. Yeah. I watched one thing recently that's in the world of true crime, although I don't think it's true. Um, I think it's okay. based on a book. It was called Murder in Ohio. Okay, doesn't sound familiar. Oh, sorry, Devil in Ohio. I'm so sorry. Devil in Ohio, not Murder in Ohio. I think that's a podcast, actually. So, Devil in Ohio, it's pretty good, I think. Um, Out of ten for this series, I would give it a seven. Hmm. So, I would say worth it. What's the show about? And is it real or... No, it's it's scripted. It's uh, okay. a series, uh, limited series, and I think it's just one season. Uh, it's based on a book of the same title by Daria Politin. I didn't hmm. know that offhand. I'm not going to pretend, but I looked that part up. And uh, the, it stars Emily Deschanel uh, from Bones, if you remember her. Um, oh, is she related? I just realized. Is she related to Zoe Deschanel? Yes, the odds. they're okay. sisters. <laughs> okay. And you might think they don't really look that much alike thinking about it, but if you actually look at a picture of the two of them together, you're like, oh, you're obviously sisters. Yeah. Um, it has a few other stars in it that I don't think are as quite recognizable, but basically she is a psychiatrist at a hospital. Uh, she's married. She's got a kid. I think she's got two kids. And... Um, in her work, she comes across a young woman who is, like, seriously traumatized and has, like, a, a scar on her back, like, severe, severe scar on her back, but she won't speak. Hmm. It's about uncovering who this young woman is, you know, how involved will she get. There's also sort of a side plot with police work going on that's uncovering a peripheral story. Right. It's, it's you know, that kind of, like, mystery with thriller, you know, whatever. It's pretty good. I, it's not supernatural or anything like that, really. Interesting. I think it's good. I think the there's a little bit 
of a WB11 slash like ABC family drama vibe to vibe. it sometimes. Okay. You know, they they strangely focus on weird side stories with uh, Emily Deschanel's character's kids in like high school and stuff. And hmm. it, there's some strange things going on and they're trying to have like queer representation in a really strange way. It's not insulting. It's just kind of like pitiful over the top kind of not even over it's just pitiful it's like oh that per- that person's going to be the gay representation oh, that's yeah, who yeah, we yeah. get yeah it's not okay. like problematic it's just like <laughs> it's that's just Kurt who we from get. glee <laughs> i think it's worth watching but it, 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 be prepared for within some like good like genuinely good show stuff you get a little bit of the silly too so gotcha Anyway, that's really the only thing I've watched. Um, other than that, my one piece of information to share is that it was, as some of you may know, I think we might have said it, uh, it was just recently my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. I mean... Again. I expected that to come after I said it, but that's not why I said it. <laughs> <laughs> but had you not said it, I mean, how rude, right? I would have heard about it for weeks. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm just mentioning... I have had an iPhone 8 since it came out with the button. Which was like 10 years ago? Shut the hell up. <laughs> it was like six, about six, just over five. Anyway, it's an old phone, I get it, and it's a, a, a relic, but it's served me well until about, you know, I don't know, five months ago when the Wi-Fi stopped working on it. Uh-huh. And then the camera was already bad, the speaker was bad. I basically was like letting it fall to pieces in my hand. Actually, yeah. literally, because I had a clear case, and you could see that the back part of it had a shatter <laughs> that I just refused to take the clear case off of because it yeah. was holding it together. <laughs> really pathetic. Anyway, for my birthday, Davey helped me get a new cell phone, and so now I have the newest Apple Apple uh, iPhone, what is it, 14? 14. 14, yeah. Not the Pro. Look at you. Regular. I know. I, I'm, I didn't think I'd be able to get it smaller, which I like. Okay. And the camera's a lot better, which is good. I'm not, like, super photographer, but it's good um, since my other camera was so bad. And it works much quicker than my old one did, which is great. And it's pretty. It's cute. It's like lavender. I haven't ever had a pretty colored phone. Oh, yeah. It's cute. It's, like, it's a silly little thing. But it really is, like, I I don't know. I like the way I feel. Like, it makes me smile when I look at it. (laughs) Mine is the 11, so I'm also, like, several models behind at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but mine is the forest green color, I think, is mm-hmm. or whatever the green was oh, that I, came. I liked that green one. And it's cute and all, but I feel like, you know, whenever I buy a clear case, it's never, like, clear. Uh-huh. It's always kind of, like, gray in some way. <sighs> and so I never really notice the color of the phone after you know, the first few days of having it, probably. Oh, gosh. That's how my old phone was. I did have a clear case on that one that I let completely fall apart, and it was, like, sepia. <laughs> <laughs> disgusting. Um, uh, well, speaking of sepia tone, disgusting things, should we get into the episode of Law & Order? Oh, my gosh. Should we ever? Hey, yeah. this is the season finale. It sure is. So since we took a pretty long break uh, mid-season... We're going to take just a short break after the season finale just to kind of recharge our batteries so we're ready and raring to go. We had a lot of really big ones at the end of the season. We did. Oh my gosh, it's been a lot. So we're going to just refresh 
and we'll come back at you with season five in two weeks of this episode. So you will hear us again with season five, episode one, on October 20th, which is our usual Thursday. Great. Great. Now. Well, this is season four, episode 22 of Law and Order, and it is titled Old Friends. (laughs) And this episode opens on a busy street where a man who appears to be experiencing homelessness is petitioning a crowd of people at a bus stop for money so that he can afford his medication. He begins with a, like, Shakespearean declaration to the crowd of people about how he doesn't want to have to, like, rob people for money so he can afford his medication. Mm -hmm. He is, however, wearing a Burberry scarf, which uh, they mention, like, his plaid scarf multiple times in this episode. And so I was like... It just seemed like an odd choice. Maybe someone at the, like, in the makeup room was like, oh, he needs a scarf. I got one. I got one in my yeah, purse. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's so weird, too, is, like, I was thinking about that. Like, I I know you can buy knockoffs really easily now, but were knockoffs easy to find in the, like, early 90s? I don't know. And would he be, like, buying a knock? I guess a knockoff could be found in the trash, but it it, it was a strange choice. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, he locks eyes with a guy, so everybody's sort of, like, standing by the, the side of the road in this, on this busy road for a bus stop, which I, again, I have only spent, like, 48 hours in New York, but traffic seems to be moving at a speed that I have never seen traffic move so quickly in New York. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like New York is always just sort of, like, at a, a slow 25 miles per hour at most. Oh, no, that is not true. No? It, Maybe it's just like I was in downtown. Walking the streets of New York when there's not super, super, super crazy, crazy traffic. Yeah. You better Frogger. have a, a living will because anything can happen. <laughs> I'm a little bit used to it. And I only know that because walking through the streets with Davey, who is very brave, it's like Frogger. <laughs> I was going to say, is it like Kelly Bensamon jogging through traffic? <laughs> It's, I wish, yes, it's not quite as uh, leisurely, I'll tell you that. Well, so this man who's, you know, asking people for money kind of like locks eyes with this guy who's, you know, in a sports coat or like a a trench coat with a briefcase and he kind of gives him like a bit of a dismissive look and then we cut to like image of a semi truck driving down the road and suddenly the camera goes to a couple who's at the bus stop and the woman yells, Oh my god, like the guy from Troll 2, which by the what? By the way, if you're not a subscriber to our Patreon, you should because we just really reviewed Troll 2 and uh we also very shortly will be releasing a review of Mariah Carey's Glitter that was amazing, so you should check that out. Oh, absolutely. And if you are going to be missing us in our little 2-week break, we have a few episodes up of SVU episodes that we yes. did the same ripped from the headlines treatment too. So you definitely have a lot of fun content up there to bide you over. Is Do you mean, I think it's tied you over. Bide you over. Doubling down. Okay. All right. <laughs> You're probably right. Anyway. Uh, the man bide your who, time? Like, bide your time. Yeah. But tie, I don't know. Goodbye. This is like a Kathy Hilton, the toe that broke the camel's back. <laughs> Did you see this week's episode? Of course. <laughs> I was screaming when she said the toe that broke the camel's back. Love that woman. Oh, boy. Um, anyway, so she yells, oh, my God. And the man with the briefcase is 
Did you, okay, do you remember when season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race premiered and they did the the uh, cheerleading challenge and James Mansfield did that tumble that somehow got like oh edited God. into like her like spinning through space a million times? Yes. <laughs> That's all I could think about when I saw this because the guy goes like tumbling in front of this semi truck. Oh my God. And we cut to Logan and Briscoe at the scene. The man who, you know, tumbled in front of the semi truck is dead. And they're interviewing the semi-truck driver who says, six months until my pension, now it's going to be spent in a courtroom. He wants to kill himself. Why has he got to do it in front of my truck? And I was just like, you know, I feel like I would be a little, uh, my attitude if I had run over another human being would be slightly different than this man's. A little bit, like a (laughs) tiny, tiny bit. Like, I get that he's... You know, he was like, oh, God, I'm just, like, near retirement, whatever. Now all my money is going to be spent in a courtroom. I get that. But also, running over a pedestrian is honestly my greatest fear when I am driving. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I would, I wouldn't be, I would be a mess if I were this man. Anyway. Oh, my God. They, you know, interview the couple who, the woman who screamed, oh, my God. She says that she knows that the guy was pushed by the man who was begging for change and another old man says, you know, I'll be, I work for a living. I'll be damned if I give it away for free, referencing the man who is begging for change. Right. Um, and he also says like, oh, the guy was holding a cup from an expensive cafe. So he clearly wasn't hard up for money as though he couldn't have dug that cup out of the trash. Like, right. get a grip. Another man says he heard the guy scream. So he like didn't, it, this wasn't intentional. Uh, he didn't jump in front of the semi. They get the ID off of the body, and it is a man named Harry Brinkmeyer. And we get a really, like, the person walks over, another cop says, like, here's his ID, Harry Brinkmeyer. And then there's, like, no dialogue for 30 seconds, and Logan just goes, I guess he should have given the guy a quarter. And then we get the title sequence. But they, like, (laughs) they held on that moment for a really long period of time. It was weird. It really was. I was like, oh, they really thought they did something there, I think. Yeah. So we get the title sequence, and I had a little bit of time, and so I purchased a 3,000-piece jigsaw puzzle from Amazon with no picture, Uh, so it's just pieces. (laughs) And as I was placing the last piece, we were back. I'm going to copyright that. We are back from the title sequence, and Logan and Briscoe are at the cafe where the coffee cup came from. And they're asking the waitress there if she has ever seen a man with a plaid scarf who, you know, is begging for change in the area. And she says, oh, you mean Bruce Springsteen, the guy who plays air guitar? And, you know, they ask her if he lives in the neighborhood. And she says, like, well, I don't know where. Like, yes, I don't know where. He did invite me home one time, but I didn't go with him. Uh, they talk to a beat cop in the area who knows the man as Rudy and says that he spent part of his time in a psych ward at Bellevue. And uh, when he isn't in Bellevue, he kind of like knows the area that he lives in. And uh, he takes them there, but, you know, apparently he's not there during the day. So they're like, well, we'll, you know, come back at night, I guess. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, they go to the medical examiners, who is extremely flippant in this entire episode, but she tells them that there's not much of him to see, referencing the guy who got hit by the semi-truck, and that the next of kin hasn't been down to ID him yet because, quote, we're going to need to glue him back together. 
And they're like, that bad, huh? And she says, you try playing speed bump to an 18-wheeler. <laughs> she does tell them that they did find blue fibers, torn blue fibers under his fingernails. So they think that uh, maybe it was, you know, he grabbed onto the jacket or whatever of the person who pushed him into traffic. So it, now we're at nighttime. And Logan and Briscoe head down to the encampment to try to find Rudy. And... You hear what some could call a siren song. I would describe it more as Scuttle the Seagull from The Little Mermaid singing. uh, Because it's like, you just hear them like walking around a a encampment and then they're like, wow, 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 and they follow this beautiful song and find Rudy. They bring him down to the station oh for interrogation. God. He uh, continues to sing for them, but he's very, like, lucid and with it and tells them, like, I didn't do this. You can't arrest me. Uh, and But they decide to arrest him anyway, and he's like, what's the charge? And Briscoe says, singing off key. <sighs> <laughs> Meanwhile... His public defender arrives and tells the officers that they have no evidence besides the fact that her client was in the area at the time and talking to other pedestrians. While they're debating this, uh, I can't remember if it's Logan or Briscoe, but one of them walks in and says that they found that the fibers under the victim's fingernails do not match Rudy's coat, so Rudy is essentially proved to not be involved. So they're kind of mm, like back at damn. ground zero. Is that the phrase? Square one. Square, square one. Square <laughs> the one. The toe that broke the camel's back. So they go back to the medical examiner who offers, re- I swear to God, they immediately cut to her and her opening line is, well, he definitely got run over by a truck. <laughs> we get it, lady. Very astute. Very groundbreaking information. Uh, but she does say it was the truck. It wasn't the truck that killed him. He was already dead by the time he got hit by the truck. She says he was shot by a thirty-two caliber, and that's what killed him. So I feel like they, unless this truck was going ninety miles an hour, mm-hmm. I feel like they would have noticed a gunshot wound already. But whatever, right? And probably a bullet casing, or something, like a bullet, right? You would think. They go to talk to the deceased's wife, and uh, she's like, I don't know anything. Like, what do you mean somebody would have killed him? I thought this, I thought some, you know, random person just pushed him into a truck. And she says, you know, I don't know anybody who would have wanted to threaten him. You know, he, he was the CFO for a baby food company. I don't know anything helpful. So while they have officers searching the scene for a shell case, they go and uh, interview this man, Harry's co-workers. Uh, and we immediately meet his uh, co-worker, uh, kind of like head of the company, Allison Janney. Yes. Were you so excited when you saw her? I was. I love her. I do too. Her, It's her and another co-worker who are kind of like, the, the two of them and the victim, Harry, were kind of like the three senior most people of this baby food company. So the other co-worker, his name, the actor's name is Victor Slezak. And the minute I like didn't really recognize him from anything. He actually happened to be in a couple episodes of The Americans that I watched. Mm. Um, but all I could think of was the Slezak from Land of the Lost when I heard, saw his name is Slezak. So What's that? You never saw any Land of the Lost? 
I used to watch the the rebooted TV show of Land of the Lost in like the early 2000s, 90s. Oh, the Sleestocks were like kind of swamp creaturey things from Land of the Lost. <laughs> oh, I uh, used to love that show though. Land of the Lost. Land of the Lost. Okay, I'll stop. All right. So his name is Stephen Green. And Ali- uh, even I'm just going to use Alice and Janney uh, because I don't didn't write down her character's name. So Alice and Janney says that Harry, the victim, was dependable. He was happy. He was easy to work with. He was well paid. Uh, you know, they don't know of any reason why anybody would have wanted to kill him. And they're like, well, did he ever, like, want more than he earned? Did he have a gambling problem? Did he have any girlfriends? Uh, but she has no helpful information for them. So they ask some more questions about <laughs> Harry and Stephen Green, who is not a very good actor. Like, they ask some questions, and he, like, slowly ra- raises his finger and, like, taps the side of his head while he's thinking in some very bad, like, let me think about that. Mm. <laughs> uh, and Alice and Janie is like, oh, you know what? We did have to fire a bookkeeper about a year ago, but, you know, it was just because she wasn't doing her job. And Stephen Green says, no, actually, there was something between the two of them. They had been seeing each other. And this is news to Alice and Janney. Mm. They go and talk to this bookkeeper who Harry had had a fling with. And she tells them that Harry didn't look it, but he liked to have a good time. And says that Harry was going to get some money together and divorce his wife and they were going to be together. So now they're thinking, okay, maybe the wife killed him after she found out about this affair. So they go back and talk to her. And she says, like, no, I knew about the affair. This wasn't the first time he cheated, but I told him to end it, and he did. Like, we had a new baby together. uh, And, you know, the only thing that was, like, going on in Harry's life was he talked about how he was going to go get a new job. And uh, she says that a couple of weeks ago you know, late at night, she heard some noise in the kitchen and Harry was in there throwing away a bunch of baby food he'd brought from the office and said, we're not feeding this to Sam, the baby, anymore, Mm. and told her to buy a different brand of baby food. So, of course, it... They don't. They hear this information, and my my brain immediately goes like, "Oh, there's something wrong with the baby food." Right. And they're like, it takes them a little while to get to this conclusion. Uh, however, they're at, at the station talking about like what line of inquiry to pursue next, and they're like, maybe there was something wrong with the baby food. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I know. I was like, obviously. So. They decide to get a subpoena for the financial records for the baby food company, and a forensic accountant guy says, there's like a couple of scenes that are sort of like weirdly unnecessary that essentially tell us that the baby food company was in a bit of financial trouble for a while. They were strapped for cash. The bank had called in the loan. So they go to talk to some woman at the bank, or you might not have recognized her as a human being. You might have thought she was a a sentient pile of fallen leaves the way they had her dressed and had her hair styled. Um, But she says that they called in a loan and that the baby food company had gotten a new partner, uh, Stephen Green. And they're like, oh, we didn't realize Stephen Green was new to the company. So outside, after talking to the sentient pile of leaves, Logan says, I think these people are all mobbed up. Okay? Okay. 
So they go back to Alice and Janney and uh, Stephen Green, and she says that they, you know, when the police had asked for the financial records for the baby food company, they also looked to see if there were any irregularities and didn't see anything wrong. Uh, And they're like, do you have any idea why Harry would uh, want his baby to not eat the baby food? And she's like, no, I have no idea. Victor Green, or Victor Green? Stephen Green uh, says that uh, he had, they ask him, like, how did you get the loan from the bank covered so quickly? And he says that he, uh, you know, works with a private equity group. And they're like, give us the contact information for them. So they go down there, and it's some, like, random apartment building in the middle of New York with literally, like, a uh, label maker label printed on, stuck to the door that says Brookings Ventures. <laughs> and inside, there is a woman who, uh, I, I you could have mistaken her as the woman who plays the Swamp Witch from Troll 2, uh, <laughs> saying that there's no one there, that they have to make an appointment. Her accent is all over the place. I was unclear if she was supposed to be Irish, Italian, Russian, German. It was like a full Anna Delvey. I was going to say Anna Delvey. <laughs> character exploration of an accent. <laughs> um, they go back to Alice and Janney, and uh, she says that Harry was the one who knew Steve, and he brought Steve in to kind of like save the company's financials, and Steve got them the loan. And, uh, you know, she knows Stephen Green to just be this honest, hardworking son of immigrants. And she tells them that his real name is Sasha Gruskov and that he was born in Russia. And they ask about this loan that he, you know, gave the company. And it was a really high interest rate, like 25%. And so now they're thinking, you know, at the station, they, you know, know the name Gruskov. Apparently, the Gruskov family has a bunch of records for various crimes they think they are, uh, you know, pretty deeply connected to the mob family. And Detective Ask Jeeves comes in and offers <laughs> them a partial print on the shell that they found at the scene belonging to a man named Nikolai Rustov. Because apparently they were feeling very uncreative when they came up with the names, by the way, because they were like, Ruskov, uh, Rustov, okay. Rustov, like, Rustov. Just... Yeah. <laughs> So we're getting more Russian mob implications. So they go down to Nikolai Rustov's apartment to track him down because they think he is the man who shot and killed Harry. He's not there, but his roommate lets the cops in, and that apparently allows them to just ransack the apartment. They find ammunition that matches the uh, shell. They also find a blue coat that might match the fibers that were found under Harry's fingernails. And then the door opens, and you, like, sort of see a man, and Logan says, you, stick around. But Nikolai, this is Nikolai, apparently, runs back out into the hallway, and somebody hits the autoplay button on a Casio keyboard, and a chase scene ensues. They chase him to the roof, handcuff him, and say, dos vidanya, Nikki. And then he has a bag with him, Briscoe reaches in, no gloves on, grabs a gun out of the bag and, like, holds it by the trigger, like, swinging on his finger, saying, hey, Nikki, this the flavor of the week? I don't think that's how you're supposed to handle evidence. It was pretty shocking. Yeah. Especially because it literally was, like, he was, like, spinning it around on his finger like he was playing with some kind of toy. So, uh, at arraignment, Nikolai is charged with murder in the second. He pleads not guilty. He's held without bail. Stone, Kincaid, and Schiff meet. 
And apparently they have been trying to take down the Russian mob for a while. And they've thought Stephen Green must be part of the mob. And so they're going to try to use this Nikolai Rostov character to roll on Stephen Green to kind of like take down a more senior member of the Russian mob. Hmm. We learn that the baby food has is like tainted baby food and that uh, the USDA had shut down the company earlier that morning. So they think their th- theory of what happened is that Harry found out that the food was contaminated and that uh, this would have meant a big loss for the Russian mob if he managed to get the company shut down. So they had Harry killed so that they could continue to collect their huge loan from Alice mm. and Janney or to Alice and Janney. So they talk to Nikolai at Rikers, and Stone offers him man one if he will say that Stephen Green is the man who ordered the hit. But he refuses to turn, and he doesn't take the deal. We get a scene at the Organized Crime Bureau, and it's essentially one of those, like, scenes where they've got, like, the red strings connecting a bunch of photographs talking about the mob, and it's not Mm -hmm. really worth going into all the detail about it. But they're really just trying to find a way to prove that Stephen Green uh, orchestrated this murder. Right. So they wonder if Alice and Janney knows more than she's told them so far. So they bring her down to the DA's office and she says, she's very earnest. And she's like, I just thought Steve's family was in real estate. Like, I never thought that his family was connected to the Russian mob or that they were gangsters in any way. They do ask her, have you ever seen this man, Nikolai Rostov, who's the one who shot Harry? And she tells them that she saw them in, she saw him once in Steve's office late at night, and it was the night before Harry was shot and killed. Hmm. So, and she says that a week before his murder, Harry had told her that Steve was buying apricots from Poland that were moldy, but Steve told her that it wasn't true. And so she says that Steve, uh, she asked Steve after the police came when Harry had died, whether he had had anything to do with this. And he says he didn't. And she didn't like probe any further because she trusted him and didn't know anything about his family being connected to organized crime. Hmm. So they go back to Rostov and offer him federal protection if he informs on Steve Green and his family. And uh, Stone kind of doesn't re- like doesn't directly threaten him, but basically is like, uh, "How long do you think you're going to survive in prison? Like you're a hitman, something, something." I'm unclear why there's such a threat to this man in the prison system, but Stone is able to kind of like convince him that his life will be in danger if he goes to prison, mm-hmm. and so he does end up informing on Stephen Green and says that he is the man who ordered the hit on Harry. Right. So. Logan and Briscoe go and arrest Stephen Green for the murder of Henry, Harry. And Alice and Janie shows up in Ben's office immediately following this and tells her that she's been getting phone calls every hour on the hour with nobody on the other line. Somebody, like, walked by her and flashed a flashlight in her eyes. And so she's her, she thinks her life is in danger. <laughs> So Stone tells her they're going to put her in witness protection so that she can testify against Steve Green and the and the uh, Gruskov family. Uh, and she's very nervous to do this. Uh, but Stone tells her, like, listen, you're going to have to leave New York no matter what because you're connected to this mob, 
mob family. And so you might as well testify because uh, if you don't, you're still your life will still be in danger, but you're going to also tank our case. Right. And, and she, she's also been like going to the police and talking to them. She's probably would already be in danger anyway. Exactly. It's not like they're not watching her if they're worried about her. Right. Uh, so if she refuses, he says she'll be indicted for hindering prosecution. And she says, it's only baby food. How did I end up here? <laughs> Which was just like, it felt like the corniest line of dialogue to give her. It was. Anyway. Um, meanwhile, the Griskov family tries to get the arrest thrown out, claiming that Stone coerced and pressured Nikolai into testifying against Stephen Green. Uh, but the judge allows the testimony at trial. Alice and Janie testifies, but she changes her story and says that she's never seen Nikolai Rustov before. She's never seen him in Stephen Green's office. Uh, so she's changing changing her story to protect herself and Mm. stone kind of loses it at this. They recess from trial for a few minutes and stone talks to Alice and Janney and says, uh, you know, you're committing perjury. If you refuse to testify and, you know, uh, give the factual statement, I'll have you arrested for felony perjury. And Kincaid is like trying to dissuade stone from doing this, but stone is adamant and, Alice and Janney continues to refuse, so he has her, like, arrested for felony perjury. But ultimately, after being in custody, she decides she will testify, and at trial she testifies that she did see him in Stephen Green's office, so she provides the connection, and the jury finds Stephen Green guilty of the murder of Harry. And then in the final scenes at Stone's office, we learn that Alice and Janney has been shot and killed as she was being moved out of her off out of her apartment by police to be put in witness protection. Mm-hmm. And that the man who shot and killed her was shot by police. He had no ID. They don't know who he was. But of course, he must have been somebody connected to the Russian mob. Right. And so Stone is sort of like regretting his decisions, thinks he made a mistake. And this causes Stone to resign as assistant district attorney. And that is the end of the final episode of season four. Wow. I kind of thought that like Stone was getting more and more throughout the episode, like more and more uh, kind of like frenetic and wild. And I was like, oh, they must be like leading up to him being fired or him quitting or something. Yeah, I mean, these last few episodes, it's been like that. Yeah. Wow, what great job. Thank you. I was so- Next season, I don't know who we're going to get. I, I didn't look it up. Oh, I know. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah. And let me tell you, so, ugh, this is an actor who I cannot stand huh. on the other thing that I've seen him on, and so oh. I'm praying that he is, like, a wildly different actor. Oh my gosh. Uh, because it is Sam Waterston who plays the uh, husband on Grace and Frankie. Um, yeah. And I forget his name, but he is atrocious on Grace and Frankie. So I'm praying that he's good on Law and Order because he he is on the next 381 episodes of this show. Yeah, he's on it forever. Yeah. I think he's good. I feel like I liked him. Okay. All right. I'm going to I'm going to keep an open mind. Yeah, be, be positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was watching this kind of wondering, like, whether this was going to be based on a real crime or if they made this one up. So I'm curious to hear. Mm. Well, well, you'll be 
may be surprised to hear this was actually based on nothing. Oh, all right. Yeah, so I had my pick of the litter. All right. And I was like, you know, hmm, how much am I willing to do? I was like, this is the season finale, (laughs) but we've also had a lot of really big ones recently. Yeah. And so I decided to talk about the story of Michael and Dahlia DiPolito. Hmm. I don't think I know those names. All right. Well, Maybe I will as you yeah. go into it, though. I'm I'm hoping you don't, but I'm okay. I'm curious if you do. So we'll okay. See. All right. Michael DiPolito was born in 1971 to an Italian American family in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, pretty ordinary early life. Siblings played popular. Pretty average. Okay. Nothing really of note. He goes to high school, graduates, all of that. What Uh, area of the country was this again? Oh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay, thanks. So next kind of like life moment for him, fast forwarding quite a bit, 1997. He's 27 years old, and he has an unfortunate run-in with the law. Okay. He is arrested for offering an undercover deputy $15 for sex. Mm. But he is released after pleading guilty to what he did, and it it looks like maybe he just paid a fine. There's really not much information. He wasn't—he didn't serve any jail time. Okay. It's around the same time, around 1997, when he begins dating a girl named Karen Tan. Uh, She's from New York and recently moved to his area, which is, uh, at this time, Florida. He moved to Florida by this time. Mm-hmm. So 1997, 27 years old, he has this run-in with the undercover deputy. Uh, he is now living in Florida, uh, Boynton Beach, I believe it's called, but we'll get there in a minute. Okay. So he dates this woman named Karen Tan, and uh, she works for a nonprofit for uh, children and families. She's a recent transplant there from New York, so she's sort of from around the area he's from. Mm-hmm. The relationship doesn't last too, too long, but just remember the name Karen because it'll come up at the very, very end. Okay. After their relationship ends, he starts working in commodities trading, which we talked about in a previous episode, so I had to learn what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, from working in a sort of um, local boiler room operation, Uh he learns how to defraud people. He works in a boiler room and learns how to defraud people? So boiler room is like a term in the fraud world. Okay. Like a stocks and whatever fraudulent world for a small kind of... I was thinking like an actual room with a boiler in it. And I was like, how does that prepare you to defraud people? (laughs) No, no. It's just this like small local, like small operation that they have where... um, you know, he learns how to defraud people. He originally gotcha. is working for bigger names, allegedly, but it's never really decided. There might be connections to some crime families, but I that see. was from one article that was very mm, slanted. So I'm okay. going to just move on from that. Okay. Um, so he is, he learns how to defraud people. Uh, he's not doing it professionally himself yet, but he's connected with some people who may be. He's also dating a new woman named Maria Luongo. He began dating her only a couple months after breaking up with Karen. By 2001, 
He's now set up two companies of his own. One is called MAD Financial, and the other is called CTU Incorporated. Mm -hmm. And he's getting people to invest foreign currency into them. Okay. Uh, He's living in Boca Raton, Florida at this point. He's about 30 years old. And he's running this operation solo from his house. And he's, you know, telling people over the phone that if they invest upwards of $20,000, they can start earning profits of 8000 within months. Hmm. So he's making these big lofty promises to people, kind of cold calling people from these companies. And okay. he's actually getting their investments. Yeah. But unfortunately for them, he's just pocketing them because the companies are fake. Hmm. So some of the things he's spending this money on that he's getting, mm-hmm. for example... in pay-by-minute chat rooms for sex and psychics. Eesh. So, you know, know, not yucking your yum, but, you know, if you're going to do that, you could use your own money. Yeah. Dipolito was arrested in March of 2002 for, in relation to this, uh, he's arrested for theft and fraud charges, totaling up to $200,000 taken from people. Hmm. He did it within 11 months, too. $200,000 $200,000 in 11 months? Yeah. Most of which he spent on psychics and uh, like sex like chat rooms? A good portion, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, well, 6000 of 200000 So not oh, a good okay. por- but that's uh, quite a bit of money. Yeah, it's 500 bucks a month. Yeah, and I think he was kind of like partying. Yeah, okay. He's sentenced to two years for this. He only serves seven months for like, you know, for, you know probation and all of that. Mm-hmm. And... For probation time, he's given 30 years, hmm. which was unusual, but it was such a high probation with such a small sentence of actual prison time Yeah, because they wanted to make sure he could pay off the restitution to the victims, mm-hmm. and they wanted to give him plenty of time because that amount was $291,000. Yikes. Yeah. So his probation was not set to end until 2032. Most people close to him say that around this time he changed for the better, you know, after getting out of prison. That was kind of like his rock bottom. And, you know, he previously had a drug and alcohol problem. Though the more, like, spoken about issue was the alcoholism. Mm -hmm. He's always been pretty honest and upfront about his alcoholism. He goes to AA and he talks about how it changed his life. Mm -hmm. He's also honest about his previous drug use. Uh, illegal drug use he said that he had a problem in the past but he never really like expanded upon it Mm -hmm. Um, so there's no word of whether he got treatment to it for or or anything if it was something he was able to kind of like casually kick Uh, one person alleges that he was addicted to crack but there's no really specifics anywhere of what he was actually using okay besides alcohol in any event By this time, he is a changed man, so it seems, and he launches an online marketing firm called Mad Media Incorporated uh, in 2007, Mm -hmm. and he uses a portion of all of his profits to pay his restitution to his victims. At this point, he's still with Maria Luongo, the woman who he was dating just after Karen Mm -hmm. and him broke up before Mm -hmm. he went to prison. Uh, She stayed by him, and she and him get married that same year in 2007. Okay. Uh, She says of him, quote, There was nothing that he wouldn't do for me. He was a great husband. He always made sure other people were happy before he was happy. Hmm. Unfortunately, this beautiful sentiment kind of fizzles away by 2009, two years later, and the couple gets divorced. 
he would be asking for the divorce from her. And when he does, he tells her uh, that he is, he just says to her one day, I want a divorce and I'm moving out. And she's like, what, what happened? And he says he had met someone else. Mm-hmm. So who was this other woman? Dahlia Muhammad was born in 1982. Uh, her family is close-knit and religious, and she is the eldest of three children. Mm-hmm. They're a mixed family that was living in New York when she was young, and her mother was Peruvian and her father Egyptian. Okay. Her mother says that Dahlia's dreams as a child were, quote, to grow up, be married, and be happy and have kids. Uh, she was born and raised in New York, as I mentioned, and her and her family moved to Boynton Beach, Florida, when Dahlia was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Her father was a waiter at the Ritz-Carlton. Her mother worked in healthcare. And when she turned 18, her parents got divorced. Her mother filed, um, claiming that her soon-to-be ex-husband was having an affair. So the two of them broke everything off by 2000. Okay. Uh, 2000, Dahlia is living with her mom. She's going to college, and she has a, like, steady job. But after this, whatever she was doing for the next set of years is a little un clear it's a little okay. dicey okay um most likely from things i've watched and read she moves to california sometime between 2000 and 2006 mm-hmm. uh, with an architect that she was dating it's unclear for how long they were dating but after they moved to california together they get engaged allegedly according to her friends who i don't know how close friends they were with her they say that she got engaged to him. They were in California. They lived there for like a minute. And then she kind of disappeared on him, taking a lot of his money and his ring. Hmm. That's in one article. Very alleged. Okay. She kind of pops back up like on paper trail, like things that can actually be proven in 2006, living back in Florida again, no longer in California. And she's single. Uh, she meets Michael just uh, Dippoli. Dippolito, please mm-hmm. why I forget his name for a second. Just <laughs> talked about him for like 15 minutes. She meets Michael Dippolito in October of 2008. Um, this is right around the time he tells his wife uh, he wants a divorce. So she meets him in October of 2008 because he was on a website. I think it was eros.com or something like that or erosguide.com. And while his wife was on a business trip out of state she he ordered a escort Mm. the escort that showed up was dahlia okay uh she was working on this website and you know they met i'm unclear about what they did i'm sure you can fill in the blanks but he became very interested in her very quickly and so did she with him so past this first set up like you know pay the website money date they develop a non-professional, like, real-life relationship pretty quickly. Okay. It's so intense so quickly that by the time his wife returns home from her business trip, which couldn't have been more than maybe maximum two weeks, mm-hmm. he tells her the day she comes back that he wants a divorce and that he's met somebody else and that he's moving out. Hmm. The divorce finalizes in January of 2009, and five days later, Michael and Dahlia marry at a courthouse ceremony. Okay. And they move into his newly bought $225,000 townhouse in Boynton Beach. Wow. So 
That is the nature of how this couple meets. Okay. Now, living with someone, as many of us know, is when you kind of like really, really get to know people. And right. And all that comes with the day-to-day life of them. Mm-hmm. And Dahlia was always aware that Michael was a recovering addict. Uh, she knew about his jail time. She knew about his dicey past. And Michael, in order to maintain his sobriety, is very open about how he needs routine and structure. Um, if you've seen him, pictures of him, he's very fit. He's kind of like a buff guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got, like, tattoos that symbolize, like, strength for him and stuff like that. He's very regimented, cares very much about, like, how he appears and takes supplements on a schedule, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he lives a very regimented lifestyle in order to maintain his sobriety, which, of course, it affects Dahlia's new lifestyle living with him. Mm-hmm. But she's adjusting to it. Um, the one thing that she can't really adjust to is, since he's on probation, he has a lot of limitations. Mm-hmm. Her main problem is they can't travel, because if he wants to travel outside of the county, he needs to like get he needs to report it. And if he wants to travel out of state or out of country, certainly he would need to get written approval, and it's like a whole, whole process. Yeah, there's no spontaneity. They're newlyweds. So she's like, what do we need to do to get rid of this? Like, how do we fix this now that we're a team? And he's like, well, he still has 191 k to pay. He's only paid off 100 k at this point. And she's like, well, how about this? We're a team now. I will pay. I'll put up 91000 if you put up the remaining 1000 That way we can get this done in, like, half the time and we could, like, live. We can live our life. So he's like, all right, great. Um, He starts writing her checks on a pretty regular basis. um, And he had given her the full amount of his 100,000 by, um, I don't know, they were married probably six months. Okay. So she begins on getting her money together. And she says that, you know, when she's got everything all set, which is pretty soon, she'll wire it to his attorney. In 2009, the couple was on vacation this is the same year they got married and an anonymous tip is called into the police uh they come outside of their like it's not clear if they were at a hotel or at a you know someplace while they were on vacation but when they get back to their car because of this anonymous tip police are like surrounding the vehicle and they said hmm. they got an anonymous tip that there's drugs in this car hmm. so they search the car they find nothing uh they Move on. He thinks it's some kind of setup or someone's out to get him. Two weeks later, they're in West Palm Beach, Florida. They get another call, another anonymous call in this area to search his car. This time, they find a little baggie of cocaine hidden underneath the wheel of the front tire, the front Mm. tire, like, bay or whatever you call it. Uh Uh-huh. And they're like, all right, what's this? And... For whatever reason, he was not arrested. He tells them this has to be a setup, probably because why would I keep drugs there on the outside of my vehicle? It's probably unlikely. It's not clear, though. He's He is able to talk to them, and he says that it's definitely a setup. He says to them, two weeks ago I got a call. There was nothing in my car. I think they confiscate the drugs, and they send him on his way. I, unclear what happens. Another time, he is on his way to go to the gym, and he gets to his car, and there's a, like, very amateurish threatening note, kind of like what you'd see in a movie, 
and it basically says something to the effect of, if you don't get me $40,000 left in a bag under this car, uh, you know, tomorrow at the same time, you're, you're dead meat kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and he reports it to the police. The police say he was very paranoid when he did so. And he told them, quote, I wish whoever this is will just break my car windows or even just shoot me and get it over with already. Hmm. So Michael's becoming increasingly paranoid. Hmm. August 5th, 2009. Dahlia wakes up around 6 a.m. and she goes to the gym, the local L.A. fitness, for a workout. She says goodbye to Michael, who is at the time still asleep. He's recovering from some cosmetic procedure he had recently gotten. So he wakes up, he says goodbye, whatever. She leaves. While she's at the workout, which isn't super long, she gets a voicemail. So she hears it. It is the Boynton County Police. And they say, like, call us back. It's urgent. So she calls back. Uh, They tell her, you have to get back to your house. There's been an emergency. There's been an accident. She asks Hmm. if it's, you know, is everything okay? I'm not far. And they say, just get home. So she gets home. She finds her house is like a total crime scene. There's police cars everywhere on the block. There's agents all over uh, that, you know, do not pass. Tape is everywhere. And the police tell her that there seems to have been a robbery and that her husband, Michael, who is 38 years old, has been shot and killed in their bedroom. Yikes. She immediately breaks down, wailing, no, no, screaming, and, you know, she can't be calmed. Uh, They tell her, we're not going to let you inside. You don't want to see this. They tell her, come back to the station, and we'll give you details. So she gets to the station. Um, She says she's very upset. She says she doesn't want to be recorded, but they tell her, you know, you are being recorded. That's just kind of how it goes. And she explains to her why, so she calms down a little bit. And so she understands. So from this point on, everything that happens basically is on camera because hmm. she's at the station. Okay. So she wants, she says that she wants to see her husband. She's still kind of like talking through tears and they, they said she didn't, they didn't let her. And she says, you know, I just want to see him. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's a crime scene and we have to figure out what's going on. They let her know that her cooperation is pretty vital because she might be in danger. She's not sure if she was told this or not, but he was killed in their bedroom, in their bed, with two gunshot wounds to the head. Yikes. So it's always possible she was also a target and just yeah. had to be lucky. out. Right. So, and that wasn't her normal schedule. Like, she went to the gym, but it wasn't like she was like a, a 6 a.m. everyday girl, you know? Oh, so this wasn't common. It, yeah, it wasn't common enough for someone to, like, clock her schedule. Oh, I see. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Like, yeah. it wouldn't be like, oh, she's out at 6 a.m., now he's alone. So right. it's it wouldn't be unusual for her to be home at that time. Okay. She's like, okay, I'll, you know, I, whatever you need. And they said, do, you, do either of you have any enemies? She says she doesn't, and that he doesn't really have any specific enemies, but, like, he's had a rough life. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? So she tells them about his previous prison sentence and his time away uh she tells them about how he you know is a recovering alcoholic in aa and he's had a drug problem with crack and she says that um the only thing recently that comes to mind is the fact that he was close to getting off of probation and it was pissing a lot of people off like nothing specific but she said that according to him it was a it was problematic because you know it was such a long probation and People had somehow heard that he was close to paying off restitution, and 
They didn't like that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was something. They don't tell her they already have a suspect. Hmm. So a man named Muhammad Shahade told them about three or four days prior, I believe, that he needed to confess to them something. He tells them that he had helped order a hit on Michael DiPolito. And they ask him, you know, who did you who did you work with in doing this? And he tells them it's a woman that he knew from in the past named Delilah, and she was looking to kill her husband. Uh, he knows this Delilah from back in 1999, which is like a decade ago at this point. Um, they had dated after that brief dating. They remained friends with benefits for a few years. They lost touch about five years ago, and she recently reconnected with him Reconnected with him this year and called him. Uh, this is Delilah. This is actually Dahlia that he's talking about. She had uh, allegedly given him a fake name. Okay, I was going to say, I thought her name was Dahlia. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's referring to her as Delilah throughout his whole statement. They don't correct him, but we will come to find out that this is Dahlia he's speaking about. Okay. But he swears that's the name she had given him. Okay. When he calls them, he says that earlier that same day, she had reached out to him and spoken to him on the phone and asked him to help her kill her husband, Michael. Um, She said that he was abusive, the divorce would be really complicated and expensive, and she needed help. Mm -hmm. Um, He was dicey about doing it and said, like, I don't want to get involved. And she said, fine, I'll find someone else. I just need to get a gun. And because of how he knows her uh, on and off for like a decade, he felt that she sounded really sincere. Mm -hmm. And he didn't think it was just like a flip comment or like, I'm pissed at somebody, so... He called the police, reports it, and says that she has a, quote, two-faced personality. With her, it's my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold your – any questions you might have about this part, you can pause just for a moment because they may be answered shortly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's get back to Dahlia a few days after this phone call comes in that they're not letting her know about. Mm-hmm. She says in the room, you know, all of the people who might be involved with – wanting to hurt her recently deceased husband, Michael, and, uh, you know, his past and stuff. But they have something to show her. First, they bring in a man who is in handcuffs, who says he's, who they say is the hitman who killed Michael. Okay. Um, And they say, this is the hitman who killed your husband. Have you ever seen him before? And she says, I've never seen this person in my life. They ask her if she'd have any reason to want her husband dead. She says, absolutely not. We were great. We had a great relationship. I I don't know. We've only been married like six months. And the guy, they ask him, do you know her? And he, he doesn't say anything. And eventually the cop brings him back out. And the cop says to her that's interrogating her this whole time, questioning her, says, game over. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he says to her, Michael's not dead. What? And she goes, oh, thank God. And he goes, oh, thank God, right? And then they open the door, and her husband, who she believed was killed, walks in the room, in the doorway. And they have a heated conversation, which I will talk to in a second. Okay. (laughs) So confused. So so how did this all happen, we wonder, right? 
this informant guy, Muhammad, that we talked about earlier, which it might be confusing because Delilah's maiden last name is Muhammad. There's obviously no relation. Okay. But if you've heard it before and you're like, did I hear someone else with the same last name? You Got haven't. It. It's okay. a different person. So this gentleman, Muhammad, who says he knew, quote, unquote, Delilah, um, he came to them immediately after she had called him. And so they said, okay, um, this sounds legit enough. And, you know, from what they know, they're like, let's figure this out. So they say, Do, will you agree to go undercover? And he says, yes. So this was on July 31st, 2009. When, okay. they get, when she arrives home, it's August 5th, and sees that her husband is quote-unquote dead. Okay. So because they got to him so early, he calls her back right away. Um, recorded on a recorded line as soon as they get him set up mm-hmm. and uh, they speak again and he says okay about what you talked about earlier you know I'm I, I'm in if you're really serious I'm willing to help you and she's like great so they agree to meet up all of the meetings that happen that I'm going to talk about are both filmed on camera from like the back seat unknowingly okay. to her or on audio um, or both most of them are both okay so everything is like there's a lot of quotes I have. They set up this in-person meeting between Muhammad and Delia, uh, Dahlia. Mm-hmm. She shows up. They're listening live. In addition to it being recorded, they're listening live so they can like react if they need to. Yeah. She shows up very casual, goes to the car. She's in like a tank top, just like a beachy hat, very beachy, casual look. Mm-hmm. Like girl at the Starbucks. And he says to her, quote, I can't believe you're getting me involved in this shit. She's like, I love you too. Very flip, very yeah. cash. He says to her, honestly, is it really worth getting someone killed? And she says, the thing is, it's like me going and fucking filing for divorce. Like he'll come after my fucking ass, period. She says that she's going to go to Boca and get an alibi. And after he's gone, that's it. And she'll, you know, be sh- she'll be shocked like everybody else. Yeah. And he asks her, like, don't you think people might suspect you, like you're his wife? And she says, quote, going and killing someone? Come on. Nobody is going to be able to point a finger at me. <laughs> uh, he tells her, you know, she asks about the guy who he has in mind to take out the hit. And he says it's someone that he knows. Um, he's had trouble with the law himself. And he's just knows people. And that's why she went to him. So it's not unlike him knowing somebody. So... Someone he trusts, and she says, like, you know, uh, she gives him some amount of money that they agree to, which was not, like, major. Um, and she gives him pictures of her boyfriend, her husband, Michael. Okay. She already had them with her when they met. And before she gets out of the car, she says, wipe my prints off those fucking pictures. And he says, okay, uh, just make sure that when you talk to the, you know, set something up with, I'll set the hitman up to call you. When you talk to him, he's going to want his cash in 20s um, and make sure, you know, we just keep this on the deal. And she says, we never talk about it again. Uh, She's getting out of the car. He looks a little distraught. She says, smile. You look so sad. Smile. And he says, it's not the kind of easiest thing to smile about. And she says, okay, come on. And she says, later, bye. (laughs) Yeah. So the hitman who is actually a detective undercover, Detective Jean, he calls her and tells her on the phone, which is recorded, of course, uh, I'm going to need 3000 up front and a key to your house. Okay. And she's kind of dicey about it. She's not in love with the idea about him getting a key to the house, but she doesn't want to argue, obviously, with someone dangerous. So she's like, okay, sure. She then calls Muhammad immediately back, and she kind of flips out. 
And she's like, I don't want it happening at my house. This was not the plan. I don't want it to be a robbery. I don't want any of our stuff gone. Like, I need this to be believable. I'm getting nervous. Right. But he tells her, no, 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 you're not going to be actually robbed. You can trust this guy. This is fine. And she's like, I don't even like talking on the phone so much. I already feel like this is getting complicated. And I should have just done this on my own. And so because all of this is being listened to, police are, like, hearing this, and they're worried she's scared off. So they instruct the undercover detective who's posing as the hitman, like, how to handle it and get Mm -hmm. her back in in line. Mm -hmm. So um, she meets him in person. Again, this is on camera. And she's in the front seat, and she says to him, quote, I'm a lot tougher than what I look. I know you look at me like, oh, what a cute little girl, whatever, but I'm not. I'm I'm really not. They negotiate back and forth about the pay a little bit and how it's going to go. Um, they agree to $7,000, and she would – he wants part of it up front, but she's really uncomfortable with that. And she's like, listen, I just need this done. So mm-hmm. um, he goes, okay, well, I need it the day of. So, you know, Wednesday morning at your house, I want, I want the money as soon as I finish. Mm-hmm. And he says he's going to make it look like a robbery went bad. He'll call her right away afterwards, and then that's how he'll get paid. And she tells him every morning he walks the dog at a certain time and we leave the front door unlocked. So they don't need a key. So he knows when to go and she says she'll go to the gym around that time. And when he asks her, like, are you sure you want this to happen? Like, when you do something like this, I just want to be sure because I don't want any problems after this is done. Like, there is no going back. Right. And she says, quote, it's not even about the money. And, uh... She's asked again, like, are you sure you want this to happen? She says, I want it to happen. I need it to happen this week. And he says, you leave the car. There's no turning back. And she says, quote, I'm positive. I'm 5,000% sure. (laughs) So she goes to the gym. The police are surveilling her. So as soon as she leaves, Michael has no idea any of this is going on, by the way. He's legit just living life with her, you know, at at home recovering from liposuction. Like, he's just chilling. Yeah. They go to his house. He enter, He answers the door. He's, like, in bandages. And they're like, hi, we're the police. Uh, your wife is trying to kill you. Come with us, <laughs> basically. And he's like, what the F? So they bring him to the station. They show him all the footage they have already. They, they let him listen to everything. Everything is obviously true. So he is like, wow. And they're like, we're keeping you here. We're going to stage this whole thing. Mm-hmm. To make her think you're dead, and then we're going to see what happens from there. Because we have everything we need, basically. Yeah. And he's like, and you're going to get to watch it. So she gets home. They call her. She gets home. She arrives. She's in, like, the the footage. It, you probably you may have seen it. Um, it went very, very viral at the time. Okay. And it was actually also filmed by the TV show Cops. Oh, wow. Um, okay. They had filmed previously with this police station, and they they had them on site for this whole thing. Can you remind me what year this is again? 2009. Okay. So they, they're filming the whole thing. Like I said, when she gets home, it looks, like, very legit. And as soon as the police officer says to her, Michael has been killed, before the word killed even leaves his lips, if you watch it, that's when she starts breaking down. Hmm. And experts have said, like, when you tell – obviously everyone reacts differently. But generally the type of person who's going to be frantic, you know, there's a moment when there's a realization of what's really happening. Right. And this is just at 100 the whole time. Yeah. Very, 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 very feeling rehearsed. Uh, the same day 
you know, they obviously, they they have everything they need. Um, he's watching as they interrogate her. And he's hearing her lies about, like, I have no idea who this guy is, even though she's caught on camera with the guy in the car talking to him. Um, right. They bring the guy in in cuffs as though he's, like, not a cop, just in cuffs. Right. And so it's all so flabbergasting to him that this is happening. He's in complete shock. He had no idea this was coming. They open the door. They say, here he is. And she's like, oh, my God, come here. Come here. And she's like, kind of? You could tell she's trying to play like she's very happy and relieved. Right. But it almost sounds like when a couple's arguing yeah. and they want to keep it quiet. And they're like, come here. Come here. It's like that. Yeah. And he's like, no, I'm not coming there. And she's like, why not? I didn't even do anything to you. And he goes, you tried to have me killed. Yeah. And she's like, it's not true. It's not fucking true. Come here. Come here. I just need you to come here. And he's like, no. Uh, and he, he says, I, I'm not going to be able to fix this one for you. And he walks out. Yeah. So uh, the same day this all happens, all of the footage is uploaded to Boynton Beach's, like, police account where they normally upload all their footage from the day. Yeah. And so before it even airs on Cops, it goes viral. We find out a lot of information about them after this because the press is very, very interested in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the tales about the two vehicle anonymous calls about drugs are being kind of like put on her mm. um, as though she had been the one to make the calls. And the first time she made the call about drugs being in the car or someone did, Michael said that though they found nothing, like later on in his car, he found a baggie with like pills in it that mm. were not his. And he just thought I'm being set up mm. and got rid of them. Uh, so it's possible that that was obviously planted there, if, yeah. if if you believe what he says. And also, it's possible the second bag was planted there, and that's kind of what the the news was saying. Right. The press goes nuts. Nancy Grace goes bonkers, as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw footage of her going, rut row, every time oh, they God. showed like her on the camera, like getting caught. Um, she says, Meryl Streep, move over. We got a new actress in town. It's like all of that. Yeah. She calls her mom from jail crying, and then she calls him from jail, the guy she just tried to get killed. Right. And she tells him, I need you to come here. And he's like, uh, no. Yeah, I'm good. And she's like, what Thanks. if I need help with an attorney? And he's like, good you luck. tried to have me killed. And she goes, that's not true. How could you believe that? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, before trial starts, a statement is put out by... Michael's ex-wife, Maria, the one he left for Dahlia Mm -hmm. on August 7th, 2009. She says, I have known Mike for over 10 years, and he is a good guy. We have a good marriage. Sorry. We had a good marriage, and he always made me happy and feel deserved. Our divorce was a result of differences that could not be worked out. He was a great husband and is a great man. We had our normal marital issues, but nothing out of the norm. I have no comment on my ex-husband's criminal history except to say that, in my opinion, he has turned his life around for the positive, and I wish him good luck. I'm sorry to see what he is going through. It is unfortunate that it is unfortunate that someone would do this to another human being. Yeah. So someone who would have every right to be ripping him apart is in full support of him. Right. The first trial starts in April 26th of 2011, so about two years after the event. Mm-hmm. Mike testifies for three days of this trial. Wow. They do not let up on him either side. They really 
he's up there for a long time. Um, I've seen some of the footage. He comes across very believable, very likable, like very honest. Nothing feels rehearsed. Mm-hmm. Very off the cuff with everything he's talking about to both sides. Yeah. Um, Dahlia's defense. Are you ready for this? No, probably not. Tell me briefly just two possible defenses you could imagine she's going to use. Uh, um... I guarantee you won't get it. I, okay, so I would say abuse or uh, temporary insanity? I don't know. Nope. Nope. Dahlia says this whole thing was an elaborate stunt between uh. her, Muhammad, and Michael himself. Okay. All of it was acting because they wanted to get on TV, on reality TV. Stop it. Because they had so many money woes. According to Dahlia, Michael had not given her hardly any money towards restitution, and she had never agreed to pay anything for restitution, and she doesn't have any of this money, supposedly, and any money he was sending her was to kind of hide it so that people didn't know he had money so he didn't have to pay the restitution because the accounts that she had were still in her maiden last name. Okay. And one of her accounts was in the Cayman Islands, which is where he was sending her money to. Mm-hmm. So she says this was all a ruse because they thought this was a get-rich-quick scheme um, and that all of this would be filmed and then that they would put all of this footage out on YouTube afterwards and use it as, like, a, a reel kind <clears throat> of to try to, like, sell themselves. Okay. Okay? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get more on that in a second. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, Mike Stanley takes the stand, or actually evidence is presented about Mike Stanley. I shouldn't say he takes the stand. Mike Stanley is an ex-boyfriend of Dahlia's, and during her marriage, her short marriage with Michael, there are texts between her and Mike Stanley about sexual encounters that they're going to have Mm -hmm. and money that they're going to spend once Mike is gone. Mm. Uh, Not to be confused with, so Mike being the new guy she's talking to, Mike Stanley, uh, is not to be confused with Michael, her Her husband. husband. Right, okay. So once Michael's gone, her and Mike will have all his money, and they're going to have a blast. Okay. Uh, There's also something that comes up in court, which ends up being more important than you might think. During Michael being, like, with the police officers, before he even confronts Dahlia, Mm -hmm. she's still in, you know... um, like, not in questioning or in questioning and doesn't know he's alive yet. Right. A police officer asks him, based on Muhammad's statement, if he had ever had a strange experience at home with drinking iced tea. And he was like, wow, yeah, I did. Apparently, he had been drinking iced tea a a month or so ago Uh uh, that Dolly had gotten from, like, McDonald's for him. And he took a sip of it. Oh, no, from Starbucks. They were big Starbucks people. Okay. He took a sip of it. He spit it out. He said it tasted weird, and he was sick for two weeks. Holy shit. Muhammad's call, during his initial call with uh, police, he told them that Dahlia had attempted to poison him with antifreeze in his tea. <laughs> so wow. that comes up in court as well, which, of course, they deny ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Michael's on the stand one of the days, the defense like just kind of tries to assassinate his character because of his past with police and all of that and being in jail and his fraud 
charges and every question they ask him, they're like, did you do this when you were on probation for this? When you were on probation for this, was this what you were doing? Yeah. And it, it gets really redundant and to the point where he goes, Michael tells the attorney, wow, you're like a parrot. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, were you on probation? Are you on probation? Were you on probation? Every question. Like, we get it. You're, I, we get what you're trying to do. <laughs> and the guy goes, oh, I'm just simply asking questions. And he goes, it's ridiculous. We're not here because of me. You might as well put me up next. Damn. And you can he- like, everyone is on his side. Yeah. He, uh, the, the, the defense just continuously says they were fans of Jersey Shore and the TV show Cheaters, and this was a reality show stunt. And on her computer history, there's a website that she had visited several times called, get ready for this website, <laughs> welcome to realitytvcastingcall.com. <laughs> okay? Welcome to realitytvcastingcall.com. You click on that, you're going to have 500,000 smileys and a virus. For the rest of your life. <laughs> For the rest of your life. Wow. An actual live virus in your body. Yeah. Um, you know, they say that the two of them were obsessed with their appearance together. and um, But the, the problem with this defense, among others, is if this was true, wouldn't you think that once we are in interrogation with police and you supposedly know your husband's a lot, like all of this is a fake, wouldn't this be the time to be like, all right, guys, I'm so sorry. This is an act. Here are the receipts to prove everything is an act. I'm so right. – call- this went too far. Right. Never, never. Uh, of course, Michael says this is not true. Um, he says he has never had a reality DB on a TV show, uh, a reality TV show especially. And he says, quote, in an interview, what reality show can a 40-year-old convicted, convicted felon be on? <laughs> Right. Uh, Where the, the stunt is. is my attempted murder. Right. 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 So he says um, it's the dumbest thing he's ever heard. At the end of the trial, she wanted to testify, by the way. They, they advised her against it. Yeah, they uh, usually the, do. Yeah, which, you know, at the end of the trial, she's found guilty of solicitation to commit first-degree murder with a firearm. Uh, the judge, the jurors were, said it was unanimous and easy when spoken <laughs> to afterwards. And they said that the reason was, despite this reality show argument, there was actually no evidence presented ever to support that it was actually for a reality show. Right. No no conversation, no text messages. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the judge, when he's issuing out his sentence, says, there's no moral justification for your conduct. It's just pure evil. And he issues her a 20-year sentence. However, mm. the appeal happens immediately. Of course. The appeal is because they said there was a tainted jury, and they actually have evidence that one of the – in the juror's notes in the the room, the thing about the poisoning was never put forth in the trial. Hmm, It was only something that was in the press before the trial. Okay. And one of the jurors in the deliberation notes or whatever mentions the poisoning thing. And so they said that the jury was tainted. They should have never had this information, and it should – it went into whatever – their choice. So the appellate court does reverse this conviction. Okay. They set up a new trial date for February 2016, five years later. Mm. It's delayed a few times, but it was always like earliest 2015. Before the second trial, uh, Dahlia is interviewed by ABC News. She has a special. And here are some hot takes from that. I don't need to get too into it. 
she says she's asked like how she really is what do people get wrong about you who are you really and she says she's quote understanding sweet and compassionate really bubbly very friendly and social Mm. they ask her about michael he said she says quote he was charming really engaging and i felt a really strong connection immediately uh, she says they had a lot in common. They were both big movie people. They were both like loved Starbucks and fitness and being active, and they loved each other's senses of humor. Um, they also asked her about like the tapes, but her attorney told her she's not allowed to talk about the tapes because in the second trial they would be a like key piece of evidence, mm-hmm. and so all that she's able to say is you know you'll see in the second trial, right. Uh, her attorney is interviewed. He says that they're gonna, they were gonna post these videos that they had from the surveillance on YouTube to get roles. And when she, when he hears her say that she's five thousand percent sure, he hears someone who's struggling. And the interviewer starts laughing and is like, "You think her saying she's five thousand percent sure is her struggling?" And he says, "Yes, because someone who is like actually sure would say something like a hundred and ten percent." She's overcompensating because she's unsure. Mm. All right. Okay. The original defense attorney from the first trial wrote a book about this called Poison Candy. And she says in the book, quote, about Dahlia, she was poison candy, sweet, delicious, and mouthwatering on the outside, but deadly within and designed to cripple the innocent. I hate that. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Poison candy. Terrible. Drama. Stupid. Very stupid. Like, good for you for getting the conviction. Uh, keep the writing. Keep Just Poison Candy to... for V.C. Andrews. Right. Or a, a Blackpink single. Oh, wait. That's Sour Candy. <laughs> Never mind. Have you ever seen the movie Hard Candy? Um, With Elliot Page? I don't know. I haven't. No. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. I wonder if it aged well. That's about, like, um, child predator on the internet kind of thing. Yikes. Okay. Yeah. It's it's literally just Elliot Page, one other character, and for a short time, I think, Sandra O. Oh. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's intense. Look it up. I would recommend it if you can take that kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, before the trial begins, there's a pre-trial hearing, uh, just a couple months before the actual trial, and she takes the stands during the pre-trial hearing because they felt like that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the pre-trial hearing, they're trying to put forth a motion to dismiss the case altogether because of the everything that happened during the first trial and all of their evidence and blah, 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 blah. So they're trying to okay. get everything thrown out. Okay. And they're saying that she says on the stand when she's testifying or being questioned that they were working together on an acting project for social media and that's all this was. But she is destroyed on cross-examination because they ask her questions like, I don't know, where's the script? Yeah. Where are the notes? Where is any written communication about planning or a timeline or recording? Why can't we see your faces clearly on any of the tapes? It's as though you don't know you're being filmed. If you're going to put this on the internet, why would we not be able to see your face? Right. Um, so it, the motion to dismiss is denied, and they actually go to trial for real, and the date is December 2016. I'll okay. edit out that old date. Second trial begins. Mike does not testify. Uh, they felt very overconfident with evidence, the prosecution. This time around, 
the defense has ditched the whole reality TV defense from the first trial and from the pretrial hearing like a month previous. Okay. Their new defense is that this was all misconduct of police by bringing in the show Cops. They sensationalized this. Uh, They were using taxpayers' money to make a scene. And, uh, you know, this was all just complete, like, put on. Yeah. And little did they know it was already a put on. Like, that part isn't in it, but that's kind of like, you know, the suggestion. Like, who's really at fault for this? Yeah. Getting out of control and spending all of your money. And uh, they they put forth this argument. The prosecution still has all of their physical evidence and, and such. In the closing argument, the defense attorney says, out of, never mentioned in the whole trial, he says the statement at the end of his statement, give her that freedom back to go home to her family and her infant son. (laughs) Nobody has ever heard of this infant son until this moment. Right. She does have a son. Evidently, while she was on house arrest during the time between trials, she has a baby with one of the repairmen that came to her house. And she's got an infant son at home now. Okay. The jury comes back deadlocked. Three for innocent, three for guilty. Mm-hmm. And it is declared a mistrial. Ugh. The, the attorney, the defense attorney, which I thought was in very poor taste, but I I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't get the intricacies or nuances of being an attorney and defending possible killers yeah but he's on camera immediately after leaving the courthouse like celebrating on the courthouse steps like almost in tears like nobody believed in us and we won we got this and i was like okay maybe not the right moment girl yeah i don't know just it just felt very high school yeah like i just won the big game i don't know yeah trial number three june 8th 2017 Again, this crime happened in 2009. <laughs> they, they talk a lot in... Um, I watched a TV show on uh, Peacock about this recently. Although uh-huh. I first heard about this from 2020, back in the day. Um, the show is called Murder for Hire, and this was season one, episode 11. Okay. Uh, it's called Crocodile Tears. So um, I heard from that. Basically, when you have a trial that goes on for so long... It's really good for the defense because witnesses, no matter how much they want to help, are less cooperative Yeah, after so long. Like, you get beaten down by this. Yeah. And things are forgotten, and it's easier to trip people up. So they're going to court again for the third trial. This time they're going back to the original strategy. Michael testifies, everything the same. I'm unclear if the defense stuck with the reality show thing. They went back to the police misconduct thing. A blend? I don't know. The informant that's brought forth, Muhammad, in this trial starts changing his story from the original story. And he's saying that he was pressured by police to uh, go on the sting. But he's still the one who reached out to them. Right. They have it on audio recording him admitting that he is coming forward willingly from the jump. The uh, state attorney, Lori, or sorry, Laura Lori, hard to say your name, girl, and her co-counsel, Craig Williams, essentially make 
I'm sorry, the informant, Muhammad, they make him look a, like a fool in the stand. They make yeah. him look like a complete liar. He has no explanation for any of the changes to his story. He simply would say, I, I might have said that, I don't remember. Yeah. The jury goes out after this trial for 90 minutes and come back with a guilty. <laughs> she is sentenced to 16 years. And again, I don't know what the defense was at that time. And she is still currently serving out her sentence. Okay. So let's uh, talk about where are they now a little bit. Michael DiPolito has allegedly paid back his restitution in full. Uh, by the way, on that, <laughs> he never got that money back that he allegedly gave her. And there are camp, there are checks <laughs> yeah. that show that he was giving her money. He never got that back. Yeah. And they never found it. She never paid it either. So there is that just to have. Add. But yeah. in any event... He does pay his restitution back on his own, even though being out 100 k from it. Oh, I told you to remember that name Karen earlier? Yes. Okay, so she just has an unusual part in this. Not really, but she just ends up being involved. She probably thought she would never see this guy again. But a few months after they broke up, she found out she was pregnant. And uh, she got a paternity test, and it has been shown that Michael is the father of her son. So he has new information. I think he found this out when I think if I read this correctly, the paternity test didn't happen till the kid was like ten. Okay. So now that's that's so new for all all of them. I don't know what happens with it, but I can imagine that's very challenging for all all parties involved. Yeah. Michael was also recently engaged. Uh, the last update on him is twenty twenty one. He's been engaged to a, a woman he's been dating for many years named Gloria who's very supportive of him and, you know, understands all of the things he's been through and, you know, just thinks it's terrible. Yeah. They seem very happy together. Dahlia is still in prison. Uh, she just lost her third appeal in 2021. So she's preparing number four. They, they just constantly deny to even yeah. see it. She uh, still declares her innocence. She's not due out until 2032 at which point she would be 49 years old, so still pretty young. October 24th, 2021, Mohammed Shahade was found dead in his home, unfortunately, in hmm. Florida. The cause of death is undetermined, hmm. as of whatever was reported, and I felt like it would have been a little macabre to look too deep into that. So yeah. sad for his family. And they're just going to end on the last two quotes they have for one another. Uh, they asked Dahlia in an interview, you know, you said you loved him at one time. How do you feel now? Yeah. And she says, now I wish I had never met him. And they played that for Michael, who laughed after seeing it and said, I feel the same way. Trust me. I wish I had made a left and not a right. Yeah, I bet. And that is Oof. the long, complicated, bizarre story of Dahlia and Michael DiPolito. That is wild. Right? I I chose that story because I wanted one where there was no death. Yeah. Aside from the natural death, possibly for Muhammad, obviously, last year. But no murder, um, just an alleged murder. Everyone gets out alive. And the person who did it, I mean, listen, believe what you want. You can believe her if you'd like. I think it's quite cut and dry. She She got caught. Yeah. And she got which she got caught and she got convicted, and it's kind of a a happy ending, right? In a weird way. So I just thought that that this would be a good one. And she got caught in such a preposterous way right. that I was like, oh my god! I I actually alluded to this case 
sometime early in, I think, season three, because something reminded me of it. Um, I think I had just seen the Dateline or like a Dateline or something about it. And I mentioned it. uh, And I was like, when I was thinking about what to do for this week, I was like, ooh, callback. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Did it turn out as you expected when you were first hearing about it? No, I didn't think that she was going to have tried to have her husband murdered when the story first started. Mm -hmm. Wow. And she does look very innocent. If you just like see pictures of her, you know, she's very petite. She's very unassuming looking. She doesn't look like she's, you know, up to no good. Wow. Innocent looking. Mm. But hey, everyone is uh, in, in some pictures, right? Yeah. Well, great job. Thank you. Um, okay, so what do we rate this episode for watchability? I'm going to give it a C plus for watchability. It was, I mean, I love Alice and Janney. I felt like I never really enjoy when an episode spends a dedicated amount of time going down the investigation route of something totally unrelated. So like the 20 minutes that we spent investigating this man who might have been who might have pushed this man into the street because he didn't give him money that he was begging for like it i don't know i just don't it's a fruitless red herring so i was like why why so i i felt that moment in the middle of the episode going like oh my god we like just started the actual story and we're 20 minutes in yeah i agree so i would Um, say c plus what about you i give it a d plus i for the similar reasons and i just found it unengaging like mm. Alice and Janney was the best part yeah she was really the saving grace for sure yeah and I mean it didn't deal with the anything yeah crime but like based on how they dealt with the topics they presented nothing terrible nothing really right so, so just see yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll give it a no credit how about that yeah I, I, I like agree grade I like school. that <laughs> well it's been a great season yeah so we'll see you exactly three weeks from today yes exactly okay great hey everyone do you like free stuff if you're like me you definitely do and this podcast is 100 free 5000 free some might say <laughs> so you should subscribe rate and review so other people can find us too Yes, and please go and tell somebody else about this podcast right now. Go tell it, just pick some person and tell them about it because word of mouth is the number one way people try a podcast. That's right. And Detective Ash Jeeves is here to tell you that our social media is Ripped Headlines on all platforms and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. Yep, and our website's rippedheadlinespod.com which has the link to our Patreon which we've mentioned a couple times and it's super fun so you should check it out. Also, a percentage of those Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. And if you want, you can buy us a coffee at buymeatcoffee.com slash nandmap. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you in a couple weeks, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.